This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. How do you, how do you proceed? Where do you even get going? Well, the first thing the grower is going to want to do is, is visit with a maltster and, and find out what the maltster wants, because the maltster is probably going to say, I want variety X or Y. to welcome you to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'll be your co-host today. I'm Jerry Clark with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Extension in Chippewa County, serving as an agricultural agent. And joining me today is Carl Dooley in Buffalo County. Yes, thanks a lot, Jerry. Um, And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, barley and really looking at barley uh, flavor with some of our guests from um, Oregon State today and I want to just mention we took off our winter barley this year our yields are tremendous um, compared to what we had some years and I think next week uh, we'll be looking at doing some harvest in probably Chippewa County of your spring barley how's it look Jerry? Yeah actually the barley looks looks really good we've had substantial rainfall it's uh, I think we've had three three inch rains uh, throughout the summer uh, sporadically you know uh, so it's been a wet year and if anything, these kernels hopefully are nice and plump, so it makes better good beer, better beer. And but I think that's kind of what we hope to learn today is, you know, what what does this uh, barley stuff do for beer, and and how can we make it taste better? Because I I do like beer. That's one thing. I, I should and, and you know, Carl, my office is only a block from the Lining Kugel Brewery. So yeah, I understand. Can't, it's can't it's, help it's, but drink beer in Chippewa County. Good spot for you to be. And and I should mention that uh, Jerry's uh, Jerry's plots on pretty much sand, blow sand almost. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, good soil in there. And so the rain's really necessary. We've been a little bit almost on the dry side since planting, so which is perfect for us because we're on pretty heavy silt loam soil. But with, with that, let's, um, let's start out with uh, Dr. Pat Hayes. Uh, Pat has been in the barley breeding development business for a long, long time. Um, hopefully today he'll mention sometime about his uh, his movie career, because I did send that out to a number of people. The uh, um, I can't remember the exact title, so I'll let Pat address that. But and Pat brought a couple of his students along with us today too. So, Pat, if you'd introduce a little bit more about yourself and, and Campbell and Margaret, also. Well, first, uh, Carl, thanks so much for uh, hosting us today. Uh, it's always great working with folks out in Wisconsin, and I'd like to give a shout out to some other colleagues in Wisconsin. That would be Cynthia Henson and her crew uh, at the Cereal Crops Research Unit in Madison. Uh, they just performed this invaluable service to us uh, across the nation, which is analyzing the malting quality of the experimental barleys that we develop. And also Lucia Gutierrez, who is a small grains breeder based in Madison, and she's a collaborator on all things barley as well. Like Carl mentioned, I've been working on barley for a while now. Uh, thanks uh, for not mentioning how long, Carl. I think uh, it all started about domestication around 10,000 years ago, and uh, so we've been plugging along since. Uh, we There have been some movies made along the way. Uh, Carl referred to that. Uh, this one is called, uh, that he referred to, I believe, is How Beer Saved the World. Uh, you know, last I'd seen the reviews on that, I think it was three thumbs down, but uh, at any rate, there's, there are some messages in there that are worth uh, 
Yeah, the, 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 the CGN isn't quite up to 2020 standards, I think. But uh, <laughs> other than that, the, the information is pretty good. Yeah, you know, it's a reasonable premise, I think, that uh, if it hadn't been for beer, we would not have the world we know today. And if it wasn't uh, for barley, there would be no beer. And, you know, that sort of message about uh, barley and beer uh, has served to attract some uh, great people over the years into Barley World and the most recent uh, citizens that we have, our most recent immigrants uh, would be Campbell uh, Morrissey and Margaret Halstead. So Campbell, do you mind saying a few words about yourself and what brought you to this uh, curious place? Yeah, thanks, Pat. Um, <clears throat> so prior to venturing over to Barley World, uh, I came from the brewing and distilling uh, segment been brewing and distilling professionally for the last nine years. Uh, got out of, got quickly out of the political science game after undergrad and discovered that brewing beer was a lot more fun um, and community respectful, I suppose, you know. Um, but <clears throat> through that, really learned to appreciate the agricultural side um, and the tie to the raw materials, you know, unlike wine or cider where you have just this one primary unit. We have two, we have, you know, barley as well as hops. Um, so just became very interested in what was going on in the United States to promote that. And, you know, slowly but surely kind of got in touch with Pat and decided to come on over and learn more about the breeding and genetic side um, in order to produce, you know, uh, barley of real interest to a kind of dynamic and exciting brewing distilling world. And maybe before Margaret jumps in, um, uh, both Pat and Campbell, you both mentioned Barley World. Uh, we should explain that Barley World is kind of the name of your, your group out at Oregon State, if I have it correct. Real state uh, it of is, mind. Yeah, it I thought is a maybe it was an amusement park or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go to this. Uh, so uh, Margaret uh, came to us uh, and, and very much on the, the, you know, related to, I think, the, the flavor question uh, and uh, comes to us with a unique background. When we first started visiting, I think that it's fair to say she was attracted by the flavor bit and then the question of terroir as well. Margaret. Yeah, so I'm um, not too far out of undergrad. I've always been interested in extension, um, career in extension. So and I have a background in crop science, um, soil science and agronomy from undergrad, also at OSU. And I've always been more interested in the product side of, um, of crop production and what we actually do with the crops and how what we do with the crops impacts that final project or product. So I'm kind of coming from the opposite direction of Campbell um, from crop science matriculating into how our agronomic practices impact um, the food product. And that's what um, caught my attention since it's, it's not necessarily a, a widely studied kind of subject. So that's how I found Pat's research and um, ended up talking to him. And now suddenly here I am. I was just curious with, um, with barley in, in, Again, maybe this is geared more for Margaret, but anybody, but um, what's the purpose of barley in the beer? Is it the color, the flavor? What drive, I mean, what does barley do uh, for beer? Uh, so I guess the short answer is everything. Um, you know, beer is nothing without barley. Um, it's the fermentable substrate. It provides the 
uh, yeast nutrient in addition to the sugars. It provides color. It provides flavor. Um, and, you know, a lot of when we talk about barley flavor, typically we're thinking of like Maillard reaction products and kind of those browning and caramelization flavors. But some of the stuff we're working on is kind of, is there like a flavor nuance outside of that? And then how do the different uh, barley varieties actually contribute there? Um, but really, you know, barley is the soul of beer. I mean, it wasn't until, you know, 1000 AD, so almost 11,000 years into the history of brewing that hops became uh, common. Okay. So hops aren't critical to making beer by any means. Um, yeast is obviously critical to making beer, but you know, traditional beer was just spontaneously fermented. You didn't need to grow it. You didn't need to source sure. it. It just kind of showed up. Um, so of the, the three non-water ingredients, you know, barley really does everything we need to okay. make beer. Great. Thanks. It, it, let's, let's scoot over to the, to the whole flavor thing then. I think that was a good introduction to it. We, we've had beer for a long time in the United States, pretty mass volume. Did the advent of craft brewing and the, the, did that kind of point you towards uh, studying flavor? Was that kind of a, a pivotal point, if you want to say, on, on moving into flavors on barley? Yeah, I'll jump into that one and then kind of lead on into the project that uh, Margaret alluded to where she and Campbell are elaborating because that's kind of the latest iteration of our flavor research. Uh, for sure, it's all about the craft brewing industry in terms of the barley contributions to flavor. And uh, the uh, Brewers Association uh, was really the, the agency that, that kicked this uh, off with significant funding. But, but before that, there were a group of, of kind of innovative craft brewers, and one of them is Wisconsin's own Nuglaris. And uh, Dan Carey uh, was, was one of a group of kind of innovative craft brewers who gave us some, some seed money a number of years ago to just uh, to, to ask the question, does the barley variety contribute to beer flavor? And so now it seems kind of like an obvious question, but at the time there was some temerity in asking that question because uh, the, the, the accepted uh, dogma was that either the barley is going to work for malting and brewing or it's going to give bad flavors. And so the whole system was designed to, uh, for defect elimination rather than for trying to accentuate the positives. So that then launched this uh, series of projects uh, that... Uh, We've, we've carried on now for a number of years, and the two of those uh, are now published in the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists, which is everybody's daily read, I trust. And uh, there's some just great info there, though, where we've tried to systematically document what it is that the barleys are bringing to the table. And so we do that in terms of the genetics, we do that in terms of sensory traits, and then we've incorporated a uh, metabolomics dimension into that. So all that's kind of led to the study of where we're at uh, now, where we're looking at uh, some of uh, our own varieties. We have uh, Thunder and Lightning, uh, names that uh, sort of resonate with climate change, and uh, two new uh, winter varieties. Uh, Lightning's, in fact, uh, facultative, but we have Thunder and Lightning, uh, and those are planted at uh, very different locations throughout Oregon. And we have them here in the high rainfall area the Willamette Valley. We've got them uh, in Southern Oregon, Northern California, and your irrigation in a high desert area. And then we have them dry land uh, in Pendleton, Oregon, in the Far East. And then Campbell just got back yesterday with very exciting data from uh, Condon, Oregon, uh, which you may want to look up on your map. 
and uh, showed that in fact you can generate some really outstanding barley uh, grain quality data from a very non-traditional production area. Since Wisconsin is kind of a non-traditional area for malt barley production, at least for the past hundred years, we were in it before, uh, you know, it may resonate that when you can get really great quality from an area, you might not have expected it. Campbell, you want to relate just a, a bit of your adventures out in, in Central Oregon? Yeah, totally. Um, and first of all, we should mention that Thunder and Lightning totally uh, homage to Ron Dane, you know, great Wisconsin running back. Uh, <laughs> just throwing that one out there. Um, thus far, we've we just got the malt back yesterday, um, kind of a whirlwind tour through through the state, which is great. I just moved here, so I got to got to really see everything, um, and just were really surprised um, with the quality. The yields, in particular, were very very good. Um, the plump was much better than I expected, and then the protein levels were very low. So we have the potential for a really high quality all malt, uh, Pilsner style malt. Um, and we can talk further about those nuances about kind of why protein's important. Um, and I feel like that's a big buzzword that a lot of growers will use, maltsters will use and brewers will use, but I think not always do we understand that, uh, what that role really plays and the implications thereof. Yeah. Campbell, that when you said really low proteins, how low were the proteins? Uh, they were in the eights. Um, we oh, did have really? one in the nines. Yeah. So, um, I think it was lightning, um, Tiki Barber, of course, um, that was 9% protein. Um, but then thunder, our, th our two samples I pulled of thunder were in low eights and then our, uh, experimental variety was in the mid eights. So, oh, so certainly quite low. Yeah. Um, we struggle. We, we're pretty excited if we get below 12, um, in most of our soils in Wisconsin. Um, so Jerry, you just got to partner you with distillers. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that, that's a question I, I think I'd, I'd have is, um, you know, with the with the, the quality part of this, you know, if I'm an average farmer who's grown corn and beans or alfalfa in Wisconsin forever, um, can I, and I switch over to, to malt it's, or to barley, which I could be familiar with because it's it's a small grain. We grow oats and some of the rye and that kind of, and, and a few farmers do grow barley. This is this is managed differently. This isn't just plant it, harvest it, and take it to a, a malster. You have you mentioned contracts and these kind of things, but maybe go through what those quality parameters kind of are in the industry, and then you know what happens. How, could my load of barley get rejected and that kind of thing? When you're in the malting barley game, you're doing something that's pretty unique in agriculture in the sense that you're raising this living thing. And so only in, in the seed industry are you that concerned with the viability of your grain. And so seed growers are kind of a, a different breed in and of themselves. Because in the, in the barley uh, malt game, you're creating this entity that is going to have to uh, perform in the malt house. It's going to have to germinate uh, perhaps up to a year later. And your uh, harvest procedures are going to dictate the integrity of that grain. You can't skin it. Uh, you can't have broken grains. It's going to have to be stored properly in order to retain that viability. And so you've got all these aspirations of making malting quality. And if you don't, then sort of the bottom kind of falls out of it and you're left with feed. Cow feed? <laughs> yeah. And, and feed is essential. I mean, it's 70% of the, of the world's barley is used for feed. Barley is a wonderful feed, but it has just lost... Uh, you know, the, that market share. And so that is dominated by, by corn now. And, and Campbell, did you pick up any sense from, from Mick or Sam about the, the, the feed dread, if I were to call it that? 
Um, yeah, and I, I kind of used that protein buzzword before. Um, I mean, because Pat's right, he hit the nail on the head. I mean, you just the the crew out in Condon, they're they're wheat farmers, um, and so we talked a lot about how they're running their combines differently, and you know, really just trying to to make sure that they don't damage the seed as much. Um, because the one important thing that you know Pat alluded to is the skinning is like you know husk integrity is so critical to the brewing and malting process. Um, which is one of the reasons barley is so uniquely suited for brewing. Um, and the more you damage that, then you start exposing um, the living alurone layer around the seed, um, which damages enzymatic production. So you have a lot of these implications where he's saying if he were to send dirty wheat, you know, full of chaff and stuff to his uh, broker, he would get that rejected. So it's a real mindset change just from the actual mechanical processing of it all. Um, from the protein level, um, you know, maltsters will probably start thinking about rejecting anything in that 12% range. Um, I joked about distillers earlier. Um, there is some market now for slightly higher protein um, variety malt for distilling purposes, um, especially adjunct distilling, um, which, you know, distilling with multiple grains, you know, very traditional from the American standpoint. Um, it's the opposite for all malt distilling. Um, but we're definitely seeing a movement towards lower protein for brewing, especially as adjunct lager production, you know, your big Miller Coors, Budweiser um, is losing a little bit of market share as craft brewing, all malt brewing is continuing to go up. Um, so yeah, maltsters will just say, nope, too high protein, you know, full stop. And like that, you know, it's feed barley. So, so bar oh. Oh, Jerry, please go ahead. Oh, so uh, barley then works better than corn, rice, wheat, those kind of things as far as, um, that integrity of the grain, uh, why don't we use these other grains? Why, why is barley always associated to beer? Is it because of that enzymatic process, I'm assuming? Yeah, I, I've heard it expressed as, as the barley is encapsulated yeast food. Okay. And, and just nothing else has it. All right. Campbell, in your sense as a, as a brewer and distiller, you know, and, and the load of malt comes in, how did you think of those little uh, capsules. Um, usually as a, you know, it's kind of weird to see, you know, 50,000 pounds of barley coming in or malt at this point coming into your, your brewery at once and to always kind of you think of it very commodity oriented, whereas like hops come in the smaller package and you open them up and, you know, you throw them around and you smell them and they're just so intense, you know, but <clears throat> The thing is, we don't, we didn't do nearly as much tracking on our hop quality as we did with our malt quality. And, you know, I was on the phone with our maltsters, you know, fairly regularly just talking about seasonality and changes there. Um, but typically from a processing standpoint, because we do have this massive processing uh, angle we have to look at um, from a quality standpoint, but also our flavor standpoint. Um, and, you know, to the point of using adjuncts or other grains for brewing, it's not that these grains don't contribute uh, really interesting flavors. I mean, if it weren't for rice and corn, we wouldn't have, you know, our Budweiser's, our Miller's. Um, wheat is obviously very traditional in brewing, um, Hefeweizen's, but um, becoming more and more common with hazy IPAs and those kind of things. Like, I, I, I'm a big proponent of adjunct use, but just there's no one of them that produces that same package that's going to get, uh, that's going to produce beer. You, couldn't, you could make an all-wheat beer if you had the correct processing si uh, type, but uh, couldn't make an all rice or all corn beer. Gotcha. So what part of the 
the barley, the little package, that little uh, seed brings the flavor, the unique flavors. Any, any conclusions or guesses on where the flavor comes from or the unique flavors come from yet with the research? Well, I would, yeah, I mean, there's the, there's the barley seed itself, and, and Campbell's commented on that unique alluron layer of cells that are so near the surface, and then you've got a lot of enzyme synthesis there. You've got then below that, then you've got the endosperm, and that's a source of starches, and, uh, and then other carbohydrates, and then you've got the embryo, and so then you've got various proteins and so forth sequestered there. So all of that counts. So the, so the entire three-dimensional structure of that grain is going to be involved. As plant breeders, we tend to think about the, uh, the genes. I mean, that's what we're, we're always looking at is DNA level variants. And we, we, we need to back off of that a little bit and, and, uh, and think about the very humbling fact that if a gene uh, is uh, not expressed uh, where and when, uh, you expect you're not going to get the trait that you're looking at, or certain environments may trigger expression levels, and that could be a very important part of terroir, right? That a certain gene is going to be expressed at a different level in a different environment, and not only expression, but you go from expression, and then you've got on proteins, and then proteins get modified, and then those proteins lead to different meta metabolites, and then those are parts of the metabolic pathways. So there's just this incredible complexity and in network of everything that's happening uh, in those barley kernels. So kind of fast forwarding to where barley flavor research is right now, we're partnering with some colleagues at Colorado State University. Uh, Maria Munoz Amatriain is heading up this project where we are finally getting at the genes that are driving some of these flavor components. And so uh, we're using a technique called quantitative trait locus mapping, but what that does is allows us to Kind of put some GPS coordinates on where genes are that are could that are driving sensory attributes of beer and that are driving uh, the production of specific metabolites. And that whole uh, metabolomics uh, research angle is also something that we're pursuing with colleagues at uh, Colorado State University, uh, Adam Huberger and uh, Harmony Bettenhausen. Well, Jerry would be uh, bringing the tasting aspect to uh, yeah. the expertise. Yeah. <laughs> do that. Which I remember I was out to Oregon State quite a few years ago, and and uh, Dan was there from New Glarus, and we tasted uh, three different beers on a panel that was, I think it was, were they all with full pint or three mm -hmm. different barleys? I don't even remember. Um, I'm assuming you've come away from, from that that time. Uh, they were all pretty similar. Um, there was a little bit of differences you could tell, uh, but that I think was that one of your first tastings. And where are you at from that point now? First, I've got to confess that that I am not a member of our sensory panels, uh, and so I'm kind of with Jerry. You know, I like it cold. <laughs> I like it uh, at the end of the day, and 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 you don't want the off flavor. But uh, the uh, so yeah, we in fact we started backing up a little bit when we first started this flavor. Uh, research, it was, it was driven in part by, by something that in hindsight was really naive. And we were driven a bit by kind of the farmer's market tomato example, where, you know, you, you get down to the farmer's market, you see this succulent tomato, you take it home, you slice into it, and you go, wow, that is what the tomato should taste like. That tastes like my grandma's tomato. And then you go to the market, and you buy something that just doesn't really approximate that. And so, when we started down this flavor quest, we were kind of driven by the same thing. And maybe it was like, hey, maybe there's heirloom barleys out there 
that are contributing these absolutely unique flavors. And, and I think that's still a very important question to address, but, but we quickly ran afoul of that, if you will, uh, because those heirloom barleys perform very poorly in the malting process. And so the malts are so out of spec in terms of various components that, that are key to the brewing industries that they could be driving all kinds of really quacky flavor things. And no maltster would want to deal with these things. No brewer is going to want to deal with these things, except for perhaps really ex exceptional kind of niche beers. So you mentioned the full pint. That was this kind of accidental variety that, that came out of our program. And it was picked up and marketed very successfully by an Oregon craft maltster, uh, Mecca Grade Estate Malt. And so they've been producing uh, then uh, malts and then marketing those uh, at least regionally, if not nationally, very successfully, uh, picking up particular flavors out of the, the full pint and then uh, uh, and also, you know, accentuating the terroir that their central Oregon uh, location brings to those malts. We did a project with them called the Next Pint Project, where we tried to upgrade uh, full pint uh, and uh, crossed it to other more contemporary varieties. And the results of that research are in review now with the uh, Journal of American Society of Brewing Chemists, as are uh, beers that were made uh, out of Thunder uh, and other available uh, winter barley varieties, some of which you probably had in your winter trial there in Wisconsin. So those would be uh, Wintmalt and Flavia and, uh, and so on. So the, our European colleagues have been very uh, active and very productive in developing winter malting barley. We grew those at that same location in Condon where Campbell just picked up the grain that was uh, going to be 2018 crop. And uh, we tasted uh, those, using we uh, loosely here, uh, the expert sensory panels tasted those beers and identified uh, subtle nuance differences between them. And so Margaret mentioned nuance a little earlier on. I'd say that's kind of a hallmark of our of our findings is that there are differences that sensory panels can pick up. We can start to quantify those differences in terms of genes and metabolites. But at the end of the day, it's really going to be in the hands of the brewer and the consumer to say, are these differences worth it? What about marketing? Um, you know, it, the, the whole flavor profile issue is relatively new. Um, do you think there'll be a be a, or how long or where do you think the marketing for flavor and I, I'm producing a, a malt here and I think it has a pretty cool flavor um, in Wisconsin. Any premiums you think that might be available because our, our farmers are always looking at where we can pull in an extra dollar. Where, where, where might we be at, at marketing with, with flavor and malts? I'm gonna just uh, kind of grab that ball and then pass it to Campbell uh, in, in his experience, uh, following along on some, some metaphors of, of barley names and so forth here. But uh, you know, I'd say that, that that's the dream. I mean, you see the hop variety, you see the location where the hop was raised, that's on the label. So the, the barley dream is that we see the variety name on that, on that label and we see where that barley was grown. Campbell is a brewer, do you think, and distiller, would you, what's the marketing potential for that identity? Oh, yeah, and just to add one more layer to that, um, you know, starting to get different data on our certificates of analysis, um, you know, typically those COAs come from a very processing standpoint. I'm 
you know, you can never really take that away from flavor. Um, you know, processing is going to impact flavor positively and negatively as well as, you know, beer is such a visual beverage, you know, clarity or lack thereof nowadays, um, carbonation, head retention, et cetera. But getting another set of tools for the brewer to utilize in determining that flavor profile, you and I get hops, you know, I get the kind of critical processing side, but I also get oil content and percentage of oil content that are going to have direct flavor impacts into the beer. You know, we're not getting that yet um, on a malting standpoint and just some casual conversations I've had with uh, colleagues, both in the brewing side of things and now in this, the breeding side of things is, you know, the dream would be getting an, a, a true amino acid profile, you know, so we knew exactly what, you know, amino acids were present in that malt variety, which could really, could lead to, you know, different flavor products coming out of the malt house and then again from the brew house. So the more tools we can eventually get in our toolbox, brewers will have more incentive to start bringing those things in. If they actually know how to use them is a, is another, uh, another conversation, but, you know, the more, the more knowledge we have. Um, but, you know, to allude back to my buddy's distillery in Madison, you know, there's a real interest and commitment from their, you know, brand and their customer base to have Wisconsin grown grains in their spirits. So there's an incentive there just to bring in something that's local um, to do that. It's going to be pretty challenging in Wisconsin though, without um, a small scale maltster to process that because we do have this huge intermediate step that we tend to forget about. And, you know, is it local if it's, you know, Wisconsin grown grain that's shipped to Minnesota or Michigan to get malted and then coming back to Wisconsin to get used, you know, where, where do you draw that line? Um, and I mentioned contracts earlier. And if, you know, that grower needs to contract that malt or barley to be grown by somebody or barley to be malted, malted, um, so, you know, you have to build those relationships and usually those are along the term. So there's just so many pieces involved, but, uh, you know, I do think we're moving that correct direction as Pat alluded to craft malt, um, these smaller scale malt houses who have the ability to malt different varieties um, without committing to, you know, 2000 ton batches or something. Right. I think you hit a real key there. And one of the things that we're, uh, we've done some study on in Wisconsin, we got a ways to go is we don't really have that, that key or any, real small maltsters here that would be willing to take that on. Uh, we had a great relationship with one of our larger malters over in Minnesota. They were very supportive, but their minimum bat size is 180,000 pounds. Um, we, we met all their specs three years in a row with some commercial farms here in Buffalo County. Um, and then we had two really bad years where our Don levels were too high and, and farmers just can't take that. Um, and so, I think uh, smaller volumes are key to make this work here in Wisconsin anyway, so that we don't have to do 200 acres in, in, in one farm to, to make that happen. So good key point. Um, one other thing, uh, and, and Pat, you talked a little bit, and as a breeder, um, it's, a, it's a, maybe a little different breeding barleys because of some of the limitations on, on using genetic engineering, et cetera. But how long does it take to bring a new variety on and and um, and get it okayed for the for the malting industry and the brewing industry? Yeah, so uh, excellent question with multiple answers, and so I'll, I'll try to <laughs> keep it short. You, on you this expected one. this to be easy, huh, Pat? <laughs> yeah. 
So you would kind of use a rule of thumb of 10 to 12 years or something. Uh, and so there's all various tricks of the trade that we can use to try to speed things up. And so in our research group, we use uh, a technique called double haploid production. So we basically turn pollen grains into plants. And so that really reduces the time that the, that the potential variety is kicking around in a breeding program. Uh, but there is, there's no substitute for growing uh, an experimental barley in as large a plot as possible over as many locations in years as possible. And there's just no substitute, no genetic engineering, no mapping, no nothing is gonna replace that. And we found in our, in our brewing research and flavor research and so forth is that size is everything. And so brewers uh, will uh, have a, a rightfully a bit skeptical about nano brewing. Uh, but as a research project, we have to use that. And so you mentioned a key partner in, in, in Minnesota. And so a shout out to RAR Malting because they stepped up early in the process and collaborated with us on doing what we called nano brew. So they were brewing a single bottle of barley from a single sample of, of malt. And then we did sensory uh, on that. That was our first uh, paper that we published on the barley contributions to beer flavor. But you fast forward and we need barrels of beer uh, so that you can have extensive uh, sensory panel assessment and that, the, and that you're approximating all the complexities of the brewing process. So, so that, that all takes time. The other bit though is where there's a will, there's a way. And so if you can get an industry champion who wants to, to, to really pursue and promote a variety, then things can really get some traction. And so thanks to Great Western Malting, for example, out here in the Pacific Northwest, where they looked at our new variety Thunder and they said, we wanna make this happen. And so they really grabbed that and then they took it and got it into commercial production, demonstrated that uh, it was producing the kinds of malts that they were interested in marketing. So it's, it's got its place in the market now. Uh, we're looking at a, a potential project uh, with the proximity malt people. Uh, that's with a, a selection that we have that was approved by the American Malting Barley Association. Uh, it's, a, it's a winter barley, but there just was no one who was ready to pick up yet another winter malting variety at that point. And so they needed to be into that last step of AMBA testing, which is called plant scale. And that requires car lots of barley. So they've cruskied it uh, with the uh, proximity malts, uh, steps up and says, hey, we want to try this in Delaware. And so if, if proximity and Dave like the variety, then suddenly that could burst on the scene and, and, and that could get us someplace. Uh, that particular cross was uh, made uh, and, and that selection was started uh, less than 10 years ago. But I'd just like to go back to that processing of the malt a little bit. Um, is that, so, you know, we talked about what it adds to the beer, what it does, but um, like Campbell said, there's a step in here. What is the malting process? I mean, we don't just grind up barley there and, and make what you, you know, we refer to it as feed, <laughs> what some people may refer to grinding oats or something for cattle feed, but malting is actual a whole different pro another process that is different. So could you explain that just a little bit? Let's start in on it and then both uh, throw it out to Margaret and Campbell because they'll be spending a good part of the next uh, several years in, in the OSU malt house uh, <laughs> working through this process. So uh, it's a process of controlled germination that is followed by kilning. Uh, 
and uh, kilning is essentially a, a light baking sort of operation. So what you're trying to do is, uh, is control the germination of that barley and then halt that germination, uh, apply heat to then uh, recover the uh, appropriate colors that you'd like and uh, to manage the levels of the enzymes because you want to you know, stimulate enzyme production, but you don't want to denature the enzymes by the application of too much heat for many of the styles of malt. And so your, your moistures in that grain are going to range, say, from 9%, and they're going to get all the way up to almost 50%. You're going to have temperatures that are going to range from uh, ambient uh, to cooler to then whatever temperature your malt's going to be killed at. And that's, that whole process is going to take like a week and so you think of all the ways that there are to screw something up. <laughs> it takes that many days and has that kind of fluctuation of airflow and temperature and moisture. So, Margaret, given all that, what, with what degree of, of, uh, of, of potential, uh, you know, enthusiasm versus panic do you approach the malt house? <laughs> I'm suspending my judgment till I try it, but um, with all the variables, for sure, I, I mean, Pat totally covered the process. Just what I'll add is, Campbell mentioned previously the Maillard reactions, which is the browning and caramelization, um, which is a big flavor contributor. Um, the kilning, which is, like Pat said, essentially baking the, the sprouted grains is a, a big way to control some of that flavor. Um, with the with the level of toastiness um i do know that so that's just one of the factors that um we'll be controlling um when we're malting and i'm sure campbell has a lot more to add about that campbell it's yours <laughs> uh yeah i mean just continuing on that conversation of flavor you know that kilning step has just been so traditionally the the area where the research is focused on with flavor development um kind of bringing the flavor development side into the malt house and you're just tying back to what we were talking about our research we're trying to pull that back to the breeding side of things um but even that is still fairly misunderstood or not misunderstood just not a ton of understanding um and we're starting to see especially with our craft maltsters real uh experimentation on how things are kilned even on the light side to produce kind of unique flavor profiles and trying to add different specialty malts um those are our kind of adjunct level usage. Um, so, so let me just bring that back. Um, we as brewers talk about base malt, um, which is the majority of our beer. Um, that's our enzymatic activity. That's the majority of our starch package, <clears throat> some flavor contributions. Um, but then we use in lower percentages, specialty malts. Um, those will provide, those have color contributions of everything from, you know, 10 degrees level bond, which is kind of a very light, uh, orange to, a uh, you know, 400 degrees level bond, which is basically dark black. Um, and we'll use those in about, you know, one to 50% of the beer to get our color and our flavor profile that we're looking for. And, and maybe this is a dangerous assumption, but I'm assuming the, the, the flavor profile from barley going into malt, we're probably talking more about base malt, correct? Because once you make like a Munich malt out of it, you're, you're, burning it up anyway and what flavors are going to make it through that process uh, is that a dangerous assumption that we're mainly talking about base or is that kind of where your focus is right now 
every assumption is dangerous, Carl. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you had to start somewhere. And so we started out with base malts. And so our research today has been on, uh, on beers that would be on the lighter side of the spectrum that are as malt forward as we can make them, that are hot so that, you know, that, that it tastes like a beer, but that the hop is not overly assertive. And so that's one of the, the, the questions that, that is pending for Campbell's thesis research out here is that uh, in addition to picking up grain at Condon, he swung by Deschutes Brewery in Bend and picked up uh, the uh, beers that Deschutes has brewed for us of some experimental barleys uh, derived from crosses uh, with Maris Otter. So Maris Otter is this iconic uh, British, uh, you know, a winter uh, malting barley. And uh, these, this experiment we call the romp of otters because a plural, uh, like when you get a bunch of otters together, it's called a romp. So it's the romp of otters beers. But, I'm glad uh, you explained that, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that was so anyways, bonus coverage. <laughs> Their full disclosure here. Uh, make no assumptions about the romp. Uh, so we um, th those uh, malts were uh, were were, uh, were generated uh, by our colleague Scott Fisk, uh, who who runs the uh, OSU Malt House, and and they were intentionally lighter sorts of malts. But a lot of brewers will say that they want a little more color in the Maris Otter, and that's where some of the unique Maris Otter flavors are coming from. And so one of the questions that we have out there that Campbell may or may not pursue as a project are, well, let's sort of repeat this project, but with a little more uh, higher color in the malt and then ask the question what that does for the beer flavor. Because that's chapter 20, Campbell. Do you want to go there? You want to commit today to this one or not? Uh, I think it's, it's in a podcast in the state of Wisconsin. I think that's a legally binding agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, and like, I think we keep coming back to, you know, we're kind of dually researching, you know, direct flavor contributions that would just be inherent in the barley that survives through the malting process. But then we're also looking at those kind of indirect flavor contributions, you know, what different varieties are more suited for different types of malt. Um, you know, Carl mentioned a Munich malt, um, which if those not familiar, Munich malt is a hybrid specialty and base malt, um, you know, traditional Munich beers had a little bit of a darker, slightly darker color. You know, I don't mean like stout level, um, but just more towards that orange amber. Um, and they used a slightly higher kiln malt um, that does have enough enzymatic activity remaining to be a full conversion. So is there something, you know, inherent in the barley variety that could actually produce a more ideal Munich malt um, versus another variety that might just be a better, just standard base malt or a Pilsner malt? So one of the, I mean, Again, as a, as a farmer trying to, if I was to grow this as a new crop, um, kind of that, that mid-step, that malting process, that's where that contract has to come in or the, at least the, um, the quality parameters. So I grow it, it gets uh, tested for, um, I'm assuming, uh, fusarium and all these kind of things that could have a too high of a disease level within the, the kernel. And then it, if it passes that inspection, uh, that variety then gets malted and and sold to the market, or at least the farmer has fulfilled their contract at that point. Is that kind of how the marketing works? Yeah, uh, so if you get a lot of queries uh, from, from folks who you know, are either uh, producing other crops and then like beer, and so they're saying, hey, why don't I grow for the beer market? 
uh, or their granddad grew barley, and so maybe this is something I want to do. And so we do have a publication out there, which uh, Wisconsin growers might be interested in. Uh, it's real Oregon-centric, but it's called Growing Malting Barley in the Willamette Valley. And, but we try to address those kind of bigger picture things. You know, how do you, how do you proceed? Where do you even get going? Well, the first thing the grower is going to want to do is, is, is visit with a maltster. And, and find out what the maltster wants, because the maltster is probably going to say, I want variety X or Y. And so the farmer may have heard about variety Z. And so then if they really want to do variety Z, they're going to have to convince that maltster to accept that. So there's that variety choice bit that's in there. Then, as we've mentioned already earlier uh, during this discussion, uh, there's, there are contract terms, and so that contract is going to specify the protein level and the skin to broken and, and in your neck of the woods, the fusarium uh, head blight levels and so forth. And uh, if that contract is not met, then, you know, what's the grower going to do? And so when, when I first visit with people about growing malting barley, my first question is, well, what's your alternative market? Don't, don't count on the, on the malt. I mean, think of that as, as the premium situation. What is your feed out? And, and pencil that out. Yeah, and just for the our listeners' sake, um, a couple of years ago, I didn't price it out recently, but the difference between malt grade and feed grade was about five dollars and twenty-five cents a bushel for malt grade barley and a dollar eighty-five for feed barley. So you need to be prepared for a little bit of that hit. And and one of the things our our commercial growers in in Buffalo County in western Wisconsin have been pretty much all dairy farmers or beef farmers. So they have their own outlet and it's not quite as much of a hit. Um, and thus one of our challenges to bring our proteins down low enough because they also have manure they need to apply to fields. And, and uh, so it's a little bit harder to control the proteins um, with uh, animal manure applications. So it's kind of a double-headed sword there. You got You have your market, but uh, you also have um, the, um, the other aspect we got to deal with, with the proteins, et cetera. Uh, we are approaching the end of our time, I think. We like to hold this to about an hour, but let me throw it out there. Any other, any other aspects, uh, Pat, Margaret, or Campbell, that we missed that we should hit? Just the thank yous all over again. Uh, you know, the only kind of, you know, I guess, concern that I have about this podcast is that we're not joining Jerry for that flight. Or that it's, uh... <laughs> Next time you're in Chippewa Falls, just, yeah, I, mean, I could give that tour. I've heard it so much. <laughs> here we are just Zooming in the morning and at best we've got our coffee cup. So uh, <laughs> we've got to do this over happy hour next time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That would be great. Well, I really appreciate uh, Pat, uh, Margaret Campbell for for joining us today. This has been this has been great uh, great information. Uh, we should mention that um, uh, Jerry Jerry and I are doing a field day um, the end of July um, on just the basics of growing malting barley uh, in Wisconsin. So we didn't cover that today. That was one of the reasons because we'll we'll talk about some of those challenges a little bit more and and that will be available off some of our extension um, resources uh, pages uh, web pages etc. Um, and but one other shout out I want to give out is to AMBA, the American Malting Barley Association, also to Roar Malt and to New Glarus. They've all helped fund some of the things that we've done in, in western Wisconsin, uh, both in Chippewa County and Buffalo County to, to get us this far anyway, what we know and what we don't know yet with the, the whole malting barley industry. So thank you to them and, and a shout out. I would just follow a shout out there certainly to AMBA. <laughs> 
and uh, a good uh, Wisconsinite, Mike Davis, uh, mm -hmm. who heads up AMBA because that uh, entity is, it does so many things. They, they, they uh, go through a very rigorous, they manage the very rigorous approval process for barley varieties, but uh, they also spearhead uh, the, the whole uh, research investment in barley. And so AMBA funding directly supports all the malting barley uh, breeding uh, programs in the U.S., the public programs with research funding. And then they also spearhead the federal investment in research. And if it weren't for those funds, uh, there would simply be no barley research in the United States. I'd be quite confident. Uh, no public sector. You'd have some very limited production, perhaps, by the private programs for their own um, in-house use. So shout out to AMBA and Mike. Definitely. Great people, uh, Mike and Scott, uh, that head up AMBA. Yeah. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.